Hello and welcome to Privacy Paths, a podcast brought to you by Privacy Laws and Business. My name is Laura Linkomies and I am the editor of our publications for Privacy Professionals. Today we will talk about ad tech, which broadly speaking means systems and programs that help companies to manage and analyze their advertising campaigns. This is done by, for example, choosing specific ad recipients to allow companies market their products to a maximum effect. While ad tech helps businesses to see the bigger picture and reach a more relevant audience, there are privacy issues at stake. To explain what is involved, I am joined today by two privacy experts, Marta Dimthi Moriel, who is a partner at Deloitte UK, and Alexander Dittel, Associate Director, also at Deloitte. Alex and Marta, you wrote together a great piece for our UK report about ad tech and the role of the ICO, the UK regulator in this field. Is ad tech a growing concern for companies in the UK and how is this reflected in your work? It is a concern. There is a growing awareness of ad tech being slightly problematic from a privacy perspective. But uh, what often happens is that there's this one ad tech expert within the business who knows everything and who holds the key to all the knowledge but doesn't necessarily share the risks uh with the business and uh and uh relying on often us-based solutions there's um quite a lot of acronyms and industry talk in ad tech um could you maybe just explain for our listeners first this term real-time bidding which pops up in in quite a lot of just sort of daily reporting in in newspapers? Of course. Uh, Ad tech is where the advertisers who promote their products meet the publishers who offer advertising space. So they are connected platforms used by publishers to offer their inventory in ad exchanges. And ad exchanges act as marketplaces where advertising space is requested, offered and sold. And what is RTB? So RTB is essentially the automated bidding process that instructs the ad server to execute orders for each ad impression in milliseconds based on each participant's bid criteria. Uh, For example, an advertiser instructs the system to buy certain ad inventory, uh, but not if it exceeds the desired cost, uh, such as CPM, CPA or CPC, which is a cost per thousand, cost per action or cost per click. And of course, part of all this is profiling, which may involve using third-party data for data enrichment, suppression, creating lookalike audiences, uh, or unified identifiers to personalize and individuate a content and measure campaign metrics. So yeah, as you say, quite a lot of acronyms and uh, ad tech terminology. So it's quite a difficult area for the consumer to understand. And in your article, you were saying that privacy notices often lack clarity about uh, invisible processing as taking place behind the scenes. But how can companies explain this sort of thing um, in plain English in their privacy notices? There are a few things going on here. Um, I think there's the responsibility both from the ACTEC provider and the company using the technology. There's... On the one hand, the ad tech provider needs to help its clients to explain what it is doing, because in the end, it's them that hold the keys of the processing and they understand what it is they're doing. So 
it would be helpful for ad tech providers to actually provide user-friendly explanations um, as as guidance for their clients on what they're supposed to tell individuals. Um, on the other hand, there has to be, uh, as Alex said earlier, there's, there's a lack of understanding even in businesses themselves about how this ad tech magic works. Um, so even if they wish to, um, many companies just can't explain what the ad tech does because they don't know. They really don't understand. They understand what it produces, but that is pretty much it. They don't know what the black box holds. Um, so there's there's definitely a need to a get more understanding or getting people in the on the customer side um, who know and understand Actech and and to just get that message down to a level of average understanding for their clients. So obviously, in understanding their audience, obviously, if if you're talking about a um, professional user. Um, who's very exposed to the sector, or maybe they don't need a very simple explanation. But if you have the general consumer, I always think, well, you have to be able to explain it to my 85-year-old grandmother. Um, so it has to be put in terms that is easy for the average individual or your average reader to understand. But obviously, there's that step in between, which is, well, do the people who are actually buying this actually know what it does in order to explain it? So there's a, there's a necessity in the chain to just facilitate um easy plain English information. The other thing that we see a lot in this industry is the delegation of giving information. So they're like, oh, it's not my problem. It's somebody else's problem because the chains of processing are so long. They just throw the ball at each other. And by the time it gets to the user, they don't have a clue of what they're talking about. So there's there's that need for mindfulness and responsibility of saying, okay, everybody in the chain needs to be explaining to the next person down what they're doing in a way that is simple. Now, I understand that tech is a complex subject, um, but that's where we have experts, not only technical experts. We have legal experts. We have language experts. We have um, social experts that can actually translate complex messages um, to, to simple in, in simple terms. So those are the people we need to get involved. Many a time when we are doing, say, a privacy notice, we will get someone from marketing to read it because it's like, well, is this in the language that the audience needs to, to read? Do they understand it? Um, is this in, in your uh, company language? So it's just making sure that the right people are involved to simplify that, that there is transparency in communication throughout the chain and that you communicate with your audience in a way that is easy. And I get this a lot as a, as a privacy lawyer, um, people say, well, but people don't read privacy notices, you know, they don't care. I'm like, well, that thankfully is not true. Um, but even if it is, it is your duty um, as a person processing the data to make sure that information is available. Because if something goes wrong, it will be your responsibility uh, to prove that you you explain this in a way. So the information was that, that was reasonable and it's a, in a way that, that was good for the user. So just be mindful again of, understanding and communicating throughout that chain that's what what we we help our clients see and from what we're seeing from ico that's what they're expecting to see yeah there's also quite a few actors in ad tech i've been reading statements from the internet advertising bureau and now um, as you were saying the ico is becoming much more active but do you think is this an, an area where the ico should act uh, or, or are there perhaps other stakeholders that should be regulating in this field? 
So yeah, there's plenty of representation in the industry. We have the Data and Marketing Association or DMA and the Incorporated Society of British Advertisers, uh, which both represent brands and uh, advertisers. Then we have the UK Association of Online Publishers or AOP, which uh, obviously as the name suggests, represent the publishers and then we have the ipa institute of practitioners in advertising who act for media agencies uh and uh, yeah the iab perhaps is more inclusive uh it focuses on technical delivery solutions uh, for ad tech and supporting the ad tech ecosystem but each of these uh, representative bodies uh, they are kind of self-serving they look after they look out for their members and uh, all ATEC participants benefit from the status quo, including third party cookies, you know, lax consent implementation, cookie walls, uh, data sharing. Uh, advertisers get advertising that is targeted, measured, and effective, and publishers get to sell their premium ad inventory, offering custom audiences. Uh, so I, they don't want to change that. There's there's no uh, appetite for change from either of these sides. Uh, so without the regulator's involvement, not much would change. And uh, you can just uh, take a look at the last 20 years where things have uh, changed very slowly and only thanks to uh, legislation coming out, particularly around the cookies consent, which in itself has evolved a lot initially uh there was a uh, space to uh, apply implied consent which is an absolute no-no under the gdpr so as the legislation evolved there was a move towards compliance but it's very slow and without the regulator highlighting uh some of the technical breaches of the law uh it's unlikely that change would happen without without a bit of a nudge and uh the, the biggest developments uh, over the last year or so uh, are really due to the legislation, but also in the UK, the ICO's ATTIC report from last summer, where it blatantly explained what is wrong, what it thinks is wrong with some of the processes, including re real-time bidding in the ATTIC world. And of course, since then, the ICO has announced that it will resume its investigations into ad tech and um, do you envisage this will eventually end up in enforcement and what kind of issues is the ICO potentially going to focus on? So our experience with ICO is actually that they are very much a carrot and stick regulator so they will tell people look we found something that's wrong we think you should fix it and give them a chance to fix it or to explain why they did it that way. They're not they don't regularly um, wallop people over the head with a, with a walking stick unless they really, really um, feel that, you know, you you haven't done anything about it because you didn't feel like it or because so they really they are they are very business orientated, they're very sensible. And also, most importantly, they are solution focused. So they re they want to make sure that any enforcement encourages compliance, not um, it that not that it feeds um the flame of risk ex exceeding excessive risk-based approach so if if fines are too big for example people tend to have take bigger risks because they're like well there's no way we can comply with this so we're just going to wing it and, and hope for the best and hope we don't get caught so they try and stay away from that 
um, and encourage compliance. Um, so I think that's really important when we talk about ad tech investigations is we're mindful that ICO doesn't have an approach of um, saying, right, we're out, out to get people and we're just going to fine like mad. They really want people to get it right. So with that in mind, do we think there will be fines? For sure. There'll be fines where people haven't bothered to do anything or they've just gone, eh, it's fine. They will be focused on, in, in my mind, internal compliance, make sure that you have everything you need to make sure that people who are processing the data do it properly um, and you, you're keeping data safe. Information, um, it, your information transparency, are you giving people the information they need? Um, are you relying on adequate basis to process the data? Are you actually getting consent if you're relying on consent or are you saying you're getting consent and not getting it? Are you just delegating it without actually taking assurances? So very much about the information and legitimate um, basis for processing piece. Last but not least, I think the biggest one will be information um, user rights. So if people come back to you and say, I don't want you to do this, are you are you upholding that? Are you making sure it happens? Or actually, are you actually spamming people? Are you continuing to process data where you're not supposed to? Um, and within those three things, they are actually very core and, and big issues. Um, and unfortunately, as it happens in, in, in data privacy in general, uh, there is no right or wrong answer of, of the spectrum of what you can and can't do. It very much depends on what you're doing and, and how you are, are focusing this. Now, I'll give you a very clear example with, with very, very, very... Um, yeah, specific, a very specific case. There's a certain brand of um, pregnancy tests um, that uses targeted, targeted advertising in several platforms. They do YouTube, um, Facebook, etc., etc., etc. So, if you were part of this brand, you would have to be very careful about how you target this because, yes, you can focus, you know, on a band that is women between this age and this age, and that's fine. And probably, if you do. YouTube, you do Facebook, you'd probably be fine. But the moment you cross that and you say, well, I'm going to start advertising fertility pages. I'm going to start uh, advertising in um, assisted uh, reproduction pages, etc." That point, you may be crossing a line when it comes to processing data. You may be processing sensitive data. It may have adverse effects on the person um, that is, is being targeted, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So and there is no rule book that clearly says, and this is where the line is. So it will be your responsibility as a company to draw that line and give that explanation. Um, so do I think ICA is going to fine on this? If you don't have a good explanation, most definitely yes. Um, so the important thing for everybody in the industry is to just know what their position is and to, to be prepared to justify it. And if ICO says, we disagree, this is wrong, then be prepared to to revise it. That was a great example. So what do you think businesses will have to do? Do they have to actually change their business models completely to, to achieve this kind of transparency and to be compliant in ICO's eyes? No, not necessarily. I think it, they just have to evolve with it. I, I always say the same thing. Privacy is here to help people, not to um, hinder business or to hinder compliance or you know it's here to, to help you have a better relationship with your clients um, with individuals and to, to uphold user rights and, and create that trust so yes you may have to revise things you're doing and maybe doing them slightly differently but I don't think you need to bend over backwards and just you know and 
create something completely different. It's just adapting to make sure that you are above all putting the individual first. And that will in turn create a trust from individuals that will, in my experience, boost your sales in your business. And of course, there are there are changes that uh, are ongoing in the ad tech industry, which will then have an effect on some of the business models uh, adopted by publishers, for example. Uh, many businesses rely on being able to monetize their data. And if they are forced to stop, uh, they may lose a significant part of their revenue. Uh, so the change in business models probably was partially started by the GDPR and to a lesser extent by the Californian CCPA. But uh, the big change in technologies and uh, the decisions of big tech uh, will really drive perhaps the biggest change. Uh, because they are in charge of the browser environments and uh, and those are essential for the ad tech ecosystem. So if any of them decide to uh, block advertising IDs or third party cookies, uh, obviously that they have that, the power to change the industry. And it seems that uh, that's that's where, where it's headed right now. And uh, there may be a radical change in some of the business models, particularly if the publishers are prevented from participating in the in the ad tech ecosystem for example so a very very fast moving area indeed uh, another buzzword i've seen um, quite a lot now is uh, the google sandbox what's this in initiative about and um, what is google actually trying to achieve so the google sandbox is obviously at one side of the spectrum of development but uh, uh, the current initiatives are still trying to preserve the ability to uh, cross-track people as they navigate the, the web. Uh, many identity providers uh, offer unified IDs uh, that allow publishers and advertisers to assign that to their own data sets and then and see how that people uh, how, how those people uh, navigate the web and uh, track them in that way. Uh, the Google Sandbox solution, on the other hand, is trying to stop all that. Basically, no cross-site tracking. It will try to predict the interests of people without relying on on this method, and uh, which used to be obviously achieved by third-party cookies. So this solution promises to keep the status quo in advertising, but shifts the knowledge about the user from third-party cookies to AI on the user's device. So a machine learning algorithm runs on the user's device to cluster people into interest-based groups based on their browsing history and other behavior. Instead of observing the individual, the browser will observe its user to allocate him or her to a cohort of similar people. And this is also referred to as federated learning of cohorts. And um, one thing that uh, comes to mind about this solution is that it will be limited to, it will benefit the browser provider because it relies on a technology run by the browser. Uh, Google promises a 95% uh, conversion per dollar spent rate. So it's very effective. And uh, the specific results will depend on the strength of the clustering algorithm and also the type of audience uh, that is being reached. Uh, so what is also happening is that uh, other 
identifiers are being eliminated. So, for example, connected TVs rely on thinking, oh, we're fine, we don't need third-party cookies, we use IP addresses. But surprisingly, uh, there has been an announcement that uh, uh, Google might try to obfuscate IP addresses as well to to get rid of cross-site tracking and to just bring in this privacy-friendly solution, uh, the privacy sandbox. Uh, one of the biggest uh, privacy-friendly uh, features is that it moves all the data into the device so no one will have access to it uh, but obviously the question is how can other ad tech participants uh, plug into this process going forward or will this remain a, a kind of uh, an exclusive club for the for the big tech who, who provide these services so we touched upon quite a few issues, even in this short time. Um, what would be the top tips from Deloitte for companies that operate in this area and wish to comply with the UK Data Protection Act? I would say get to understand what it is you do and get your ducks in a row. Some, it's something that baffles me every time uh, is how common it is for companies, especially legal, to have a general idea of what it is that is being done in different bits of the business, but no unanimous picture. Um, and obviously that that is more and more common um, the bigger the company. You don't have time to do see everything and understand everyone's job, but it is very important um, to understand what the processing is in every aspect of the business and, and just make sure that you're comfortable with everything you have. Um, the second thing I would say is to make sure that you are, especially the privacy professionals, are involved from the very beginning in the development of any new activities in order to make sure that you are compliant from the beginning and this won't be a headache. I always think that I don't want to be the person that says no at the end of a project. I want the person that says, great, that sounds amazing. Let's see how we can do it at the very beginning. Um, so let's make sure that, you know, if you want, if you want to comply and be successful at it, make sure that the people who need to be involved are involved from the very beginning so they can tell you how to do it without it being a problem and without taking a ridiculous amount of risk. And the third thing is always put your individuals, put the individuals first. Take a step back and think, okay, if another company was doing this to me, would I be comfortable with that? Because a lot of a lot of compliance, as we, as we um, have justified, uh, have explained earlier, is about building trust and is about putting individuals first. So you need to be able to explain how you're doing that. And the only way of, of actually um, doing it is by empathizing and saying, okay, well, am I comfortable that somebody has this data about me? Am I comfortable about this level of intrusion? And if it doesn't sound right, just make sure you do the research. You may want to ask different people um, do a little bit of investigation to make sure that you're comfortable. If you have that story to tell, if you've justified internally what you're doing, if your people are trained, um, if you know what data you're processing, it is very unlikely you'll get it completely wrong. I don't personally think you can be 100% compliant all the time, especially if you're operating in an international business because rules and perceptions are slightly different in each country. But you can definitely have a good level of compliance that will build trust. And if people trust you, it is more likely that the regulator will be happy with you and it's more likely you have more sales. So know the rules, 
know what you're doing and know how you're explaining how you're complying the rules would be my three takeaways on, on how to survive and how to thrive in the privacy world and, and the ad tech business. Great. What about the future, though? Because um, now after Brexit, we may indeed see some changes in the UK data protection framework. And um, are there aspects you think should be changed in the law that would maybe be encouraging innovation and, and not be so restrictive on companies? So this is an interesting question, which I think if, if you'd asked it pre-COVID, I would have given you a theoretical answer and went, oh, well, you know, in theory, but in, in practice, I think COVID has been an absolutely brilliant um, test of, of these um, convictions that privacy lawyers have. Um, at the beginning of all this situation with COVID, um, there was a, a, a lot of claims from the industry, from governments, etc., saying, throw the privacy rule, rule book out of the way. It hinders security. It hinders innovation. We should be able to surveillance everyone, do tests, everything we want in the name of security, in the name of health. Obviously, um, we've seen in examples, our friends in China, our friends in Israel, etc., how that has gone horribly wrong. Um, because it is very easy to enter in a big brother state, um, which is actually counterproductive because, again, privacy relies on individual trust. If the individuals don't trust you, you'll never get good data. You know, that that's the long and short of it. Um, so do we think that rules um, should change post-Brexit for innovation? It's unlikely they will because privacy is bigger than that. Privacy is international, so it will be it will vary and permute as innovation and as the world evolves. Um, even GDPR itself, the time it at the time it was published, it was already outdated because it, it didn't allow for many things that, that exist. Um, so there's a risk of over-regulating. There has to be obviously rules and limits um, for specific things. Um, I think regarding ethics, for example, and many things, there have to be parameters um, that we all agree on. Um, but it is, and it always has been, a very much a trial and error situation where um, we've we, there's been a gap in, in the rules and something has been developed and we thought, and, you know, the side has gone, well, this is completely wrong. So something comes uh, in, in, at the back of that. Do I think that um, rules will change? Most definitely, they always do. Um, the law evolves with behind technology. It's two steps behind because technology evolves faster. Um, do I think that, it, that the UK will be divergent from the rest of the world? No. In order to be able to, to lead in technology, which is you know, the plan and, and the post-Brexit plan, um, announced by the government and, and very much the, the feeling we have from, from UK companies, because it's something that, that we've always done. Um, we need to be to have the pulse, the finger on the pulse of the world. Um, so in order to do that, you have to, to have rules that are flexible and that are in line with what's actually going on and what's working and not working. So would it be sensible to have a position that is completely divergent from Europe, say? Probably not, because at the moment... Privacy in Europe is is the lead, spearheading privacy throughout the world. Will that change? Possibly. This is the end of today's programme, but we will be following these developments in the Privacy Laws and Business Reports, also with the help of Alex and Marta, who are our brilliant correspondents. 
So thank you for sharing your thoughts and expertise today. And thank you also for listeners. And uh, please have a look at privacylaws.com for our reports, training and events. Goodbye.